of you have had, when you were younger, a trip that you had to make? Maybe it was a little bit longer of a trip, and obviously because you were not driving, you uh, didn't necessarily know how close you were getting, except for the fact that as you would watch on the roads, you would see familiar sights um, as you moved closer to where you were going. You, how many of you can relate with that? Um, I, I have one trip, and, and obviously, especially as we're younger, it doesn't matter how long the trip is, we're looking for mile markers to tell us how close we're home. It doesn't matter if we go five minutes away. Uh, is the question that children, not a few of course, but siblings, uh, would ask, and uh, you're looking for those, those signs to tell you that you're getting close. And uh, the trip, though, that probably stands out to me the most, uh, in my mind, uh, for what I would use signs and markers, was the trip to Grandma's house. And uh, Grandma lived about two hours away, which today doesn't seem a whole lot of time. Uh, a two-hour trip, it's a little bit longer, but, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but when you're a child and you're sitting in the back seat, this is before smartphones, uh, this is before I had, you know, this is before I had an MP3 player, this is before, this is before I had a CD player with headphones on, okay? You probably don't even know what those are. Um, but uh, this is before all of that, where you would get in the car, if your parents loved you, they would put some kind of music or something in the cassette player in the station wagon, all right? Okay, this is how old I am. And, uh, and you would have to sit there for two hours, pray you fell asleep so it went by faster, and if you didn't, then you were stuck there in purgatory for a very long time. Uh, however, as you were looking out the window, making this trip, you begin to see things that become familiar to tell you that you were getting close, that you were on the right track, that you were on the right path, and that you were getting close to your destination. And, uh, you know, today, today I look back on that trip, and, and, and at that point, obviously, I didn't know what the exact road was, and what roads we were taking, what highways. Today, that would kill me. Uh, back then, I didn't have that. Okay? Uh, even, even today, if I'm riding with somebody somewhere for any length of time, if it's more than five minutes, I am pulling up my phone and the map. What route are we going to take? What roads are we going to be going on? I want to know exactly where I am. Back then, you couldn't do that. So you had to look around you and see the signs and the indications that you were on the right path. And, and uh, in my mind, I can remember there was a bridge that we would cross. There was a tunnel that we would go under that was filled with spray paint. Uh, there was uh, a certain building that we see. They don't even remember this. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a certain building that we would turn turn by to uh, to uh, to get to her house, and then there was a, a weird angled turn up onto a new highway that we would make. And so, uh, yeah, now they're shaking their head. Now they remember. Well, at least my mother, my father. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, but those were the road signs to me that told me that we were getting close, that we were on uh, the right track um, because I wasn't driving. I wasn't the one driving. I wasn't the one in control of where we were going or how we, go, how we were going. I had to trust that they knew where we were going and that we were on the right track and those road signs served their purpose to tell me that we were on the right track. And in our lives, as we look at uh, this, uh, this theme in Esther, that we're on a path to purpose, even when it seems that God is not working, even when it seems that He is not present, uh, these spiritual mile markers are signs that God gives us along the way 
that as we looked at last week, his providence and his sovereignty are steering us to his divine purpose and destination for our lives. Uh, now, it's easy to look at uh, people like Esther, okay, Bible characters like Esther. And, and it's, it's sometimes, I don't know about how it is for you, but sometimes it's hard to identify with them in their situations because... You know, especially if you've grown up in church and you, you've read the stories and you've heard the lessons in this Sunday school. And, and even before you had an actual Bible, maybe you had a book of Bible stories. And, and these stories and these characters uh, became larger than life to you. And now to be able to look at them and to apply their situations to us can be rather difficult. Uh, but we forget that they are and were human. And that in the... You know, whatever the big thing for them that God would use them to do, in Esther's case, the big thing of delivering the nation of Israel uh, from destruction, we forget that to get to that big thing, it was a process of daily decisions uh, that led to their greater impact. Certainly, they had huge decisions that they had to make. Again, Esther had the huge decision. Uh, of going to the king unannounced, which could be punishable by death. Nobody did that. That was a huge decision that Esther had to make. But Esther also had to make daily, small, tiny, insignificant decisions. Before she could even make the decision to go see the king, she had to make the small decisions of what to take with her when she would first meet the king in order to become queen. Uh, you know, and, and, and part of the problem is, we, we live in a culture uh, where everything is big and everything is huge and everything's a great deal and everything's a massive impact and everything's the next best thing. And, and we're all trying to, you know, save the world uh, from the whale, save the world. We're trying to do these massive, huge things to have purpose and influence and impact. And, and we lessen the value that we should be placing on everyday obedience to God in the smallest details. Uh, can I tell you this? That reaching the destination on the path to purpose is not about finding the one big thing that you're supposed to do. The one big thing that is going to uh, that is going to define your life. When people look back on you and think, "Oh, that was." Who they were. That's not. Uh, that's not what is going uh, to get you to that point. It's about faithfulness in the journey. It's about finding uh, a, a purpose in the smallest details. It's it's those that we look at these these heroes of the faith in the Word of God. It's the faithfulness that they showed in the smallest details of their life. Yes, they had a huge purpose and God would use them in a great way. But before they could even get to that point, they were faithful and they fulfilled their purpose in the small details on a day-to-day -day basis. You think of Joseph. Joseph's huge purpose was to preserve the nation of Israel when there would be a famine in the land. But before Joseph could do that, he had to be faithful when he was all by himself in Potiphar's house with Potiphar's wife. Uh, before he could do that, Joseph had to be faithful in, in, in following the Lord, giving credit to the Lord when he had a chance to interpret the dreams for the butler and the baker in prison. Before Joseph could fulfill his great, great purpose, the thing that we, we identified Joseph with, he had to be faithful in the small details. 
Um, you think of uh, Daniel. Daniel's great purpose of, uh, of, you know, standing for God, the lion's den. Uh, but what got Daniel to that point was being faithful day by day to seek the Lord in prayer. Uh, and we see that with Esther. Knowing and fulfilling your purpose is, again, not about finding the one big thing that you're supposed to do that will define the rest of your life. Knowing and fulfilling your purpose is about being faithful today with what God has given you. Uh, you don't have to wait until God reveals in the sky with an angel choir what your purpose is. Your purpose is today. Uh, your purpose is to be faithful to what God has given you today. And so last week we discussed God's sovereignty and his providence. And again, uh, if you haven't gone back and listened to that, or if you were not here last week, let me encourage you to go back and do that. Uh, because that was a fantastic lesson and explanation, uh, practically speaking, how the huge and, and, and almost inexplicable attribute of God is sovereignty can apply to us today. So let me encourage you, go back and listen to that. Uh, but uh, we, we talked about that last week, the fact that God is over all, that he controls everything, his sovereignty, and yet in his providence he's working in the smallest details uh, of each of our lives. And, and we look at Esther and we know that even though the book of Esther still does not mention God directly by name, we can still see that he is there. You read through the book of Esther, there are way too many perceived coincidences for God, for it not to be God working. Uh, uh, and, and as we look in the book of Esther and we see how God takes little tiny things to get Esther to her purpose, we see these myomarkers, these signs that tell us that she's on the right path. Uh, we find these myomarkers in our own life to reveal to us that God is working, that God is behind the scenes uh, as a sovereign and providential, powerful God. He's bringing us to his purpose that he is leading. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at a few of these spiritual mind markers today. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, again, we're still so thankful for what you did last week and for how you worked and how uh, you've proven yourself time and again to be faithful, to be true. And God, we thank you for how you continue to lead and how you continue to work, even though uh, we may not be able to see it clearly. We may not be able to understand it completely. Yet, God, in faith, we can trust uh, that you are who you said you were, and that you're going to continue to work uh, no matter what. God, I pray that in this time and in this day that you please open your word to us. Help us to see it afresh and anew. Help us, God, to have spiritual understanding and eyes that are open uh, to what you have for us. That you give us, uh, Lord, something from your word today. For those that are unable to be here, I pray that you keep them safe and that you would speak to them and let them know that your presence is there with them. Father, we ask that you'd be uh, with us in this service to come, that we would know your presence, that we would be able to step into it as we worship you. And Father, that everything would be done for your honor and glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So we're in Esther chapter number three. And uh, go ahead and look there. Esther chapter number three and look at verse number one. The Bible says, after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants 
that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servant, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened unto them, them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did he reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. So the first mile marker that we see to tell us that we are on track with God's purpose for our life, number one, it's the mile marker of spiritual warfare. The mile marker of spiritual warfare. As we look at Esther's purpose and what we would commonly attribute to her being her overarching purpose in delivering the nation of Israel, it starts with this fellow named Haman. And uh, Haman is a ruler in Persia at this time, and the king thinks so highly of him that he makes him second in command. He's over everything in the kingdom except for the king. He answers only uh, to the king. And because of that, because he is, he is given this authority, uh, the people were supposed to bow down uh, to Haman. And, and, and history will tell us that they believe that Haman, uh, not only were people to bow to him directly, but he also set up a statue of himself, similar to what Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel. Uh, but Haman set up a statue of himself, and people were supposed to bow down to that. Because in this culture, in this Eastern Persian culture, the king, much like in, in several other Eastern cultures, the king was a deity of sorts. And so Haman, since he was right up there with the king, only under the king, he also, so this, this bowing down, this was not the reverencing or showing respect for the king of, of civil authority. This was reverencing Haman as a deity. This was religious, and I think that's the reason why Mordecai made sure that he wouldn't bow down. And, and, and Mordecai is the only one to not bow down. Uh, look at verse number two again. It says, And all the king's servants were in the king's gate, bowed, and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. And I think that as we read there, we find out that uh, the king's servants, they see Mordecai bowing not down. And so they're looking at him and thinking, well, hold on a second, dude. Why, why aren't you doing this? Uh, well, it, everybody else is bowing down. Uh, you should be doing the same thing. And it uh, seems to support the fact that, Mordecai, uh, that Haman had set up an idol because he didn't even realize that Mordecai was, was not bowing down until someone told him. But when he did find out that Mordecai was the only one to, to not bow down, uh, that filled Haman with rage. I mean, and, and all of us can relate to the fact that when, when someone doesn't do something that we tell them to do, uh, especially when it's one person, you teachers can understand this. Uh, man, that will fill you with rage. Uh, and, and Haman felt the same way. And he, but, but here's the thing. What's interesting about Haman too uh, is that it goes beyond, it goes beyond just Mordecai not bowing down. 
Uh, because look what it says back in verse number one. It says, And after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha. And look what it says. He is an Agagite. An Agagite. Now, what's interesting about that is Agag, the descendant of Haman, was king of the Amalekites. And if you remember where the Amalekites were in the Old Testament, the Amalekites were the, the it seemed like the mortal enemies for a while of your Jewish people. Uh, they were constantly warring. They were, they were their rivals as they were journeying out of Egypt into the Promised Land for those 40 years. You remember the story uh, of the battle that Israel fights and, and Joshua is fighting against them and, and Moses is up on the mountain he's got to hold his hands up and as long as he holds his hands up that's when Israel wins and he puts them down. The other guys win the other guys are uh, the Amalekites. And, and so uh, and eventually uh, Israel is supposed to destroy the Amalekites. You remember Saul? Remember the thing that got, that sent Saul, that God had to, to get rid of Saul for? He was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. What does he do? He saves all of the animals and the livestock, and who? Agag, the king. Saves him a lot. Now Samuel kills him. So. Uh, but, because Saul didn't do what he was... This is a whole other lesson for another time. But because Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do, Haman still exists. And Haman has a chance now to destroy the entire nation of Israel. And so Haman has this long hatred of Jews because of, because of his descendants, because of who he is. Uh, and it's a plot for revenge, it seems. It seems that Haman was only looking for an opportunity to get rid of Jewish people because of who he was. And so we see that the first mile marker for knowing that we're on the path, even when we might not be able to see God working, is spiritual warfare. Look at Ephesians chapter number 6 and verse number 12. The Bible says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, uh, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The battle that we fight is not physical. It's not, it, it's not against one another. It is a spiritual battle. Every physical battle on this earth is backed by a spiritual one. And if you're finding yourself in some spiritual warfare, some opposition from going forward, then that might be a mile marker that you're on the path uh, to your purpose. Listen, the goal of the devil has always been, from the beginning of time, has always been and will always be to thwart the purposes of God. That has been the devil's goal since the beginning. Since he got kicked out of heaven from wanting to be God... The devil has had his goal of destroying God. Now, he knows he can't do that. He's going to lose at the end. And so if he can't defeat God, then he can do everything to defeat the purposes of God. And that includes keeping you and I from our purpose. You know, you think about this. What's the first thing that happened when Jesus ventured into his earthly ministry? Spiritual warfare. When Jesus was going to go into his earthly ministry, the first thing he had to do was go into the wilderness and be tempted of the devil three times. And so uh, uh, as Jesus starts the path to God's purpose in his earthly ministry, he faces spiritual warfare. Uh, what does uh, Paul say in 1 Corinthians 16, 9? He says, for a great door, 
He's talking about his ministry. We're going forward. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me. And what? There are many adversaries. There's spiritual warfare. Let me give you this. This is that statement underneath there. Spiritual warfare is a sign that someone is trying to stop you from doing what you should be doing. Spiritual warfare is a sign that someone is trying to stop you from doing what you should be doing. You say, oh, I, I, feel, I feel like some, someone is fighting against me. I feel like people are oppressing. I feel like uh, I, I, I'm just in a battle. And that'll be a sign. Someone's trying to stop you from doing what you should be doing. Uh, let me say this too. If there's no opposition, it could be that you're not moving forward. If there's no opposition, it could be the John moving forward. And I'm not going to say that uh, across the board. Uh, but when we do try to move forward, when we know that we're following God, and we, we know that we're pursuing His purpose, and there's opposition, that's not a roadblock that should keep us from going forward. That's a mile marker that should tell us we're on the right path. And here's the thing, because we can be encouraged. Because even though there is spiritual warfare... And, and Paul said there in Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against power, spiritual wickedness in high places. Uh, we, we have a spiritual battle, but then he goes on to give us the armor of God, the ability to fight against it, the helmet of salvation and the knowledge that God has saved us, the breastplate of righteousness to know that we are now the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, our feet shod of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the ability to take the gospel to everyone around us, uh, the shield of faith, the promises of God to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to be able to fight on the offense, to go forward uh, in uh, uh, in the path that God has set for us. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 10. We've looked at these verses before. But Paul again says, For the, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So again, we have a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but what? Mighty, powerful. The explosive power of God are the weapons that we have to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So be encouraged this morning. If you're facing opposition, if you're facing frustration, if it seems like you're getting pushed back as you try to go forward in what you believe God has called you to do, be encouraged because that ought to just be a mile marker to say you're on the right path. And we have the weapons. We have uh, the defense. We have the ability to overcome. Because what? Greater is he that is in us than he uh, that is in the world. You know, that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians that he rejoiced in his infirmities. Paul, that's so weird. But, but in Paul rejoicing in his infirmities, Paul said, I know I'm on the right track. I know that I'm headed in the right direction. Now here's the thing though. Because spiritual warfare is just that. A warfare. It's a battle. And, and it, can, it can wear down. It, it, can, uh, it can frustrate and defeat and, 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 and have a way of, 
of pulling down even the strongest of us. And, and we see that here in Esther. Look back at Esther and look at chapter number four. Because we find that although the spiritual warfare, the fact that Haman was a part of Esther's purpose and he had to do what he was going to do in order for Haman to, or for Esther to do what she was going to do, we find that Mordecai is going to be affected by this. Look at uh, Esther 4, look at verse number 1. It says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on a sackcloth with ashes, went out in the midst of the city, and cried with a loud, bitter cry. Israel uh, and Mordecai have heard now, because Haman's plan is now that uh, he's, he's so filled with rage when, when Mordecai won't bow to him, and now he's going to take all of those years, the, the prolonged existence of his people's uh, struggle with Israel. He's going to take revenge into his own hands and he's going to completely eliminate Israel. And so he goes to the king and, and says that there is a people that wants to uh, rise up and overcome you. And so we need to take them all out and kill them all and, and destroy all of them from the empire. And, and so the king says, yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. Having no idea who they were or what exactly the purpose behind Haman's plan was. And so word gets out as... As the orders go throughout all the kingdom that on this day and at this time, we're going to rise up and we're going to destroy the Jewish people. Can you imagine if, if it was broadcast on all the news networks and if it was put on social media and if you got, you know, like those alerts that everybody gets for the hurricanes or storms or whatever and it came to everybody's phone that on a certain day or at a certain time, an entire race of people was to be eliminated. Now, that's hard for us to comprehend in our day and age and our culture, but just think about that for just a second. Because the word got out, and now all Israel hears that, uh-oh, that's us. And it troubles them. And Mordecai, I wonder, maybe partly because he realizes it's He's the one that kind of started it. And he's troubled. And Esther is in the palace at this time. And apparently she doesn't get out of a lot because she seems to be completely oblivious to whatever is going on outside the palace. She's not heard about Haman's plan. She hasn't heard about what's going to happen to her people. And then she hears that her cousin Mordecai is sitting in the gate with ashes and his clothes rent. And, and he's just sitting there weeping. And people know that they're related. So she's thinking, well, this looks bad on me. I've got to do something about this. Uh, and so look at uh, verse number four there. It said, now it came to pass when they spake. Oops, excuse me. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. So they, her, 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 her maids, her people, her servants, they come and tell her what Mordecai's doing. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved. She's disturbed. She says, well, good night. What's going on? And she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away a sackcloth from him. But he received, uh, he received it not. And so Esther hears about what's going on with Mordecai, and she wants to do something about it. 
Now, she, obviously, she doesn't know what the whole deal is, what the whole situation is. She'll find that out in just a moment. Uh, but at the time, when she hears that Mordecai is, is upset and grieving, she just wants to do something uh, to help stop it. And, and that's where we get to mile marker number two. Because when we're on the path to purpose, God gives us an opportunity to bless. An opportunity to bless. You know it's time for God to move you to purpose when he places you in a position to use your influence for the advancement of his kingdom. Esther uh, was not queen because she was pretty. Now God used that physical attribute about her to get her into that place. But Esther was not queen just because she was pretty. Esther was queen because she needed to have influence and to make an impact for others. Listen, when God has positioned you to leverage your influence for his purposes and the advancement of his purposes for his people, then you're on the path to your purpose. That's, that's, that's your purpose. That's why you don't have to wait until the one big thing comes along. Where you are right now, you have influence. Where you work right now, you have influence. Where you serve here at the church, you have influence. You teach in a classroom, you have influence. If you, uh, if you see a neighbor... You have influence. And that influence and the opportunity to use that influence in someone else's life, that's a part of God's purpose for your life. That's a part of it. But God, when God gives you an opportunity to be a blessing to others, he is accomplishing his purpose in you. When God gives you an opportunity to bless others, he is accomplishing his purpose in you. Uh, God wants us to be a channel of blessing. He wants to be something that he can put a blessing in and it's going to flow out to somebody else. He wants us to be a conduit for blessings, not, not a cul-de-sac, not to go at the end of the street before to get bottled up and stuck there. No, God wants to put a blessing in our life and then know that it's going to get along to somebody else. As well, uh, why did God bless Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? The Bible says, Now the Lord has said to Abraham, Get thee out of my country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and what? Thou shalt be a blessing. Thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee all families of the earth shall be blessed. Listen, when God blesses you, he always has someone else in mind whom he wants you to bless. When God blesses you, he always has someone else in mind that he wants you to bless. Now, certainly, he blesses you because he wants to bless you. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't think that God is only using you as a middleman. God wants to bless you. But part of his purpose for you is to take that blessing and to bless someone else. To take that blessing and pass it on. Uh, Esther 
You're in the kingdom. God has just blessed you with an opportunity to have influence and an opportunity to have power and an opportunity to be in the, the most powerful place in all of the world at the time. God wants to know if you're going to use his purpose. That he has given you in ways that will advance his kingdom. Listen, uh, we, we're part of the reason why God does not reveal his purpose to us is because we want to use it selfishly or personally. We just want it for us. We just want it to fulfill us. We just want it so that we can have something. So that we can feel better. So that we can have a certain level. Fame. Power. Money. Whatever it is. The God says, no, the purpose that I give for you so that you can use it for someone else. You know, as I look, you know, across our group here, the people that are here, I see people that have influence. I see people that have obviously say, I don't have a whole lot of influence. You know, I just work here. I live here. I, I just do this or do that. Yeah, but you have influence. You have influence. You have an opportunity to bless. You have an opportunity to pass on the blessing that God has given you. If nothing else, the knowledge of salvation and the gospel of Christ that has changed your life, God says, I've given you that to pass on to somebody else. And so when we have those opportunities, I was just talking with several people this week that, that, that used the opportunities or that want to use the opportunities that they have to influence others to bless them. Uh, to be able to encourage them, to be able to lead them. And they, and they understand, talking to one, uh, one fellow, he, he understands that he has that opportunity. And, and he understands that, that it's a big deal. And he doesn't want to mess it up. Because he sees that that's just part of his purpose. And it's only one person that he has a chance to influence, or at least in this situation. Uh, but he understands that's part of his purpose. And for you, it may just be one person. This is, where, this is where I have to kind of take a step back in my own life and realize that it may not be a huge crowd. And it not, may not be a classroom full. And it may not be an auditorium full. It may just be one person that God puts in my path this week to bless. And that's my purpose. And there may be one person this week that God has for you to bless. To encourage. To strengthen. Uh, to compliment, to assist, to share the gospel with. And that is your purpose. That's your purpose. And, and as God reveals those opportunities to us, and tell you, those are mile markers to let us know that we're on the path to his purpose. Now there's one more, and instead of trying to rush through it, I wanna, that's the one I really want to spend a lot of time on, and so I think we're going to split this up we're going to have two weeks on this lesson. And so, as we study the book of Esther, we don't see God directly. He's not mentioned. He is not, uh, he is not overtly evident. But we can see his presence. We see him working. And we see these mile markers for Esther and Mordecai to show that they're on the path to their purpose.